Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, May the 29th, 2020, and this is episode 2670, 2670 of the Survival Podcast. And as I always say, we're, we're here to talk about living a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And what we're really talking about when we say that is, no matter how things change. And things change. And I think things are changing right now in an accelerated way. Uh, when we get to our quote of the day today, I'm going to be talking about that. And my end subject is going to have a lot to do with that as well. Where I want to prime that before I tell you the other things that we'll be talking about today, though, and get your mind thinking about change and the type of things that comes along. I've been saying COVID is killing the dying, and I don't mean people. And we've talked about how it's going to have uh, an acceleration on the impact of, let's say, the demise of public education as we know it, which was already happening, or retail as we know it, or the implementation of automation and so many other things. Um, I think the way you have to look at COVID when it comes to those facets in life is an accelerant dumped on a fire. Think about it that way. You've got a building burning, and yeah, that sure has some relevance to some things going on in the world right now, right? But just imagine you have a building that's burning, and the building is on fire. And it's on fire to the point where even when the fire department gets there, they're going to just kind of keep it from spreading. Like the, the structure cannot be saved. But somebody comes and they, uh, they fly over that structure, and they drop a you know, good 50-gallon drum of diesel fuel right into the middle of it. In many ways, that is what COVID is to these changes. So just kind of think about that as I tell you the other things that we'll be talking about today, because they're not all that dramatic. Uh, we have got a question on the right tools and structure for your side hustle from a economic investing standpoint, business management standpoint, from John Pugliano. We've got a question about moving from 18 to 20 volt DeWalt tools from Tim the Toolman Cook. Choosing the right type of insulation with Ben Falk. Finding local options for food with Keith Snow. And building a pond when you already have an existing wet weather pond site that's not really a pond. It's more like a muddy hole, but it might be a good place for a pond. And you got a lot of good topsoil and good quality soil in that site. You want to move it out of there and actually build the pond into an actual pond that holds water. Who else would handle that but Jeff Lawton? And then I have a, a segment today, and I've been getting a lot of this question in various forms, and I have been since I started the show 12 years ago. But with some of the stuff that's going on now, especially with the riots, is basically different versions of, is, is the United States on track for a civil war, um, a breakup, uh, a breakdown, what have you? And whenever these types of riots flare up, I'm generally the guy that says, that does not mean the U.S. is headed for a civil war. right? I'm the one that says, like, if, you, if you think like these kind of riots are something new, you, you didn't crack a, a fairly recent uh, history book. right? But I'm going to take this from a different perspective. I'm going to take a this from the perspective, how does, how does that question fit with COVID killing the dying? And that's what I'll be ending with, and it's also in a way what I'll be starting with today. As I give you the quote of the day, usually the quote of the day is like 
some philosophical thought or what have you. This is a quote out of an actual book. So it's from a storyline. It's from a book written by Ernest Hemingway. It was published in 1926. It was called The Sun Also Rises. And it's been repackaged and misattributed to a lot of people. It's been attributed to Mark Twain. It's been attributed to... Um, Uh, it's been attributed to Einstein. And it, it really comes from this book. And here's how it was put in the book between two characters named Bill and Mike. Sometimes you guys wonder why I always use Mike and Bill. Maybe it's because I'm a Hemingway fan. Anyway, in the book, Bill asked, How did you go bankrupt? Two ways, Mike said. Gradually, then suddenly. And this has been quoted in different ways, like I said, misattributed generally to things like change happens first slowly and then quickly. Or change doesn't happen overnight and then it does. And very very many permutations thereof. And I think that might be, when it comes to shifts, a really good way of looking at things, which is why it's been repackaged so many times. And I'm sure other people said it in other ways, and maybe there's some proper attributions of it. But this is the only one that I can find that really goes back to the root. I mean, you can say, this author wrote this thing this way. That's why I always try to do that with quotes. If I can, if I can do it without misattribution or without saying anonymous or unknown, I, I, I try to do that. Um, we have been headed for massive shift for years. John Pugliano and I have talked extensively in the past few years about the shift to automation. Uh, I, I firmly believe that my granddaughter might not, I didn't say won't, but might not ever learn to drive a car. I'm pretty sure my, my grandson will. And I, I guess my granddaughter probably will because even if there's no need to, I will probably teach her. Right? Because I'll be one of the old farts that hangs on in my car. But I think that in another 10 years, in another 10 years, I don't know that you'll be able to buy a new car that isn't self-driving. That doesn't mean that that car you won't be able to take control. I don't think we're, we're going to be there that quickly, where it's impossible to buy a, a car that you can drive. But I think that all cars will have self-driving technology within 10 years. In fact, I think it will be mandated. And I think something like COVID only speeds that up. There's so many places I think COVID only speeds things up. And so... Let's save the rest of that for my segment today on is this country headed for a civil war, but let me ask you a question. Has the United States been heading in the direction of civil war in some form? I, and, and as I say that, and I want to set the stage for you to think about that as we go through these other subjects today before I come back with it. Civil war is always thought of as, when you if you Google civil war, even though there's been many civil wars, throughout history, you will inevitably find through our own self-importance that what comes up is majority will be about the war between the states in the 1860s, which was more a war between the states than it was a civil war. Civil war is a, a battle for control, two sides fighting for control of an area. And I guess technically the United States Civil War was that, but it was really an attempted insurrection. It was an attempted leaving. The, 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 the South had no intent on control of the North at the beginning of the Civil War. It was not like, okay, we're going to break up and then we're going to invade. That was never the intention of the South. And this is not a judgment of who was right or who was wrong or the merits of slavery or what impact. I'm not going to rehash that. 
I'm talking from a purely logistical standpoint of warfare itself. The intention of the South was, we will secede and go our own way. That is not a classic civil war. So when we say civil war, generally we think of the United States Civil War, the blue and the gray. Or we're able to at least pull out of our own myopia and self-importance and see things like things going on in Africa in certain places today. But civil wars are not always bloody wars. And sometimes they start and end very, very quickly. Sometimes they drag out and cost a lot of lives. Civil wars, in general, of the type that we had in the United States of America, are more like a divorce. A divorce. And I have seen divorces be completely amicable. I have seen divorces be nasty. And I have seen divorces been metaphorically bloody. So when you ask me if the United States is headed for a civil war, and I say, in some ways, I think we may be, that doesn't necessarily mean two sides shooting at each other. It could. And the truth is, we won't know what it looks like until we get there. But there is a big piece of me that sees us heading in that direction, and I'll talk about why when I get to my segment. Now, on to things that are less dramatic and less uh, sad. How about you want to set up the right structure for your side hustle. I had this question, I had a series of questions come in for myself and several others in the expert council, like a roundtable discussion. I was going to do them all in one episode, and after seeing the way they played out, I decided I would do Nicole's last week, then John's this week, then mine next week. Uh, I might even not do mine on an expert panel show. I might even do mine on a Monday show. We will see. But, you know, should you set up an LLC? What other tools do you need as you begin to build your side hustle? John Pugliano, what are your thoughts on that? Hey, TSP listeners, today I'm going to do a roundtable question that Jeff has asked. It's about standard hustle tools, and my portion of the question dealt with forming an LLC, bank accounts, and liability insurance. So first off, Jeff wants to know, should he start off forming an LLC? And I would say, Jeff, absolutely. You know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I'd have said, ah, you really don't need it, but today in most states... It is so incredibly easy to file an LLC that you should do it. Now, again, you need to check where you live because the rules do vary from state to state. But if you live in one of the states where it's really just a matter of filling out a form and paying a fee, then I think you should do it. And that's exactly what it's like in my state of Utah. I think it costs $75 and the application is all online. It takes you maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes to fill it out. You pay your fee, and then you're legal and you're in business. And and do that for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, it makes you a legal entity. That helps establish you as a real business entity. And so government organizations like the IRS or other type of you know revenue collectors, they know that there's a distinction between you and your personal life and the business entity. It's also important when dealing with customers and vendors Because, you know, for example, you may be trying to buy some supplies or have access to something that's not available to the public or buying products without having to pay sales tax. And the way that you prove that you're just not a retail purchaser is by having your LLC, which shows your articles of incorporation. And then depending upon who your customer base is, it's also really important to show them that you're serious about who you are, that this isn't just some kind of a a side hustle or a hobby and you're not some kind of fly-by-night operation. The other thing to think about is that, you know, the name that you do business under doesn't necessarily have to be 
the same name of your LLC. And you can have several business activities underneath an individual LLC or down the road, you can actually have multiple LLCs and even create a shell type structure where one LLC owns another or several other LLCs. So just because you don't have your specific name of your business worked out or, or something like that, I wouldn't let that hold you back from forming the LLC. The other thing you're going to want to do, and you may be able to do this as a link from your state's website, and that's apply for a federal EIN. That's the employer identification number. It's important to have because as a legal entity, you're showing that your business is separate from you. And so when you're operating as your business, rather than using your personal social security number, you'll be using your business's EIN number. Now, as far as a bank account for your business, again, I would definitely encourage you to have a separate and distinct bank account that's separate from your personal finances. You want to do that for legal reasons and for tax reasons and should prevent you from intermingling your own personal funds with the business funds. So go to your local bank. You want to open up a business checking account. You're going to do that under the name of the LLC that you formed, and you're going to use the LLC's employer identification number, not your own Social Security number. The cost to do this should be minimal. You know, shop around for different banks. You should be able to find a bank that either has no fees for opening an account or, you know, a very minimal, maybe $500,000 account balance that you have to maintain to have the free checking account. And speaking of checking, I would encourage you to have the checks printed up. Again, it's going to cost you, you know, I don't know, $10, $20 to have a couple hundred or more checks printed up. And a lot of people think, yeah, we're in the digital era. You really don't need hard copy checks. And in your personal life, maybe you don't. But I think old-fashioned paper checks are still important for business accounts because in a lot of states and, and depending upon the jurisdiction, that paper check can be regarded as a written contract. And so, for example, if you write manually write out a check and you put paid in full on that check and it's cashed, again, it depends on the legal jurisdiction. But if someone cashes that check, they are acknowledging that you don't owe them any additional funds. So the paper check in some aspects can almost take on the form of a written contract. And because there's a memo or an information line on there, you can specifically write out and designate what that payment is for. And even if it isn't helping you with that particular vendor or supplier that you're paying, you are establishing a paper trail that shows specifically what your intent was and how those funds are being used. And so, for example, if you get audited by the IRS, you can use the comments on that check to specifically align up and collaborate what you filed on your taxes. And then, of course, the checks themselves are still digitized, so you have a digital record as well. And I do want to clarify here that I'm not saying that you should always write out physical checks, but for those one or two special times when maybe it's a very large purchase or you want to have a firm understanding and leave a record of what the intent of that purchase was, then a very simple way to do it is to write that directly on the check and then to maintain a copy of it for your records. Hey, as a side note to all this, uh, in terms of the LLC and the EIN and having a business checking account set up, just to give you an example of how that can be important and just using a current event. If you remember, over the past couple of weeks, we received a lot of questions from people asking about the payroll protection plan and if they were eligible and how they would apply for the money and things like that. Well, if you had an LLC set up and you had an EIN, 
and you had that tied to a business checking account, then a very easy way to apply for the PPP was just to go down to your local bank and by simply filling out the application and attaching a copy of your tax documents, then you could very easily and quickly prove that you had a legal business that was generating income. And while in the future we're probably not going to have a lot of opportunities to apply for things like PPPs, but it, you know if you do want to maybe get a government grant or get a business loan or even get a personal mortgage and show that you have business income, well, if you have your LLC set up and everything's documented, then it's really easy for you to prove who you are and what you're all about. And then finally, Jeff's question is about business liability insurance. And Jeff, I would really say that this is the last thing that you want to consider and really approach it from the standpoint that, that you do, should do with any insurance, which is do you need it? And remember, insurance is there to offer you protection. In the case of your business insurance, it's providing you with liability insurance. And so to the extent that you have assets that you need to protect with liability insurance, that's the degree that you need business insurance. And you need to think of that in terms of not only your business assets that you want to protect, but also your personal assets that you want to protect. Because if you screw something up in your business, even if it's set up as an LLC, you know, again, depending upon the jurisdiction you live in and exactly how negligent you were in the alleged allegation, you know, if the business doesn't have any assets, they're going to come to you personally and sue you as an individual as well. So if you have assets, then you want to think about how you protect them. And you do do that with a form of not only business insurance, but also having your personal insurance covered by an umbrella plan. So as a starting point, first consider how many assets you have, whether they be personal assets or business assets. Talk to your personal insurance company. See what types of things are covered or aren't covered under that policy. See what you can get incorporated under an umbrella policy. And then as you start forming your business, start looking at specific business liability policies that would be unique and specific to your business and the types of either products or services that you're providing. And that's a whole other can of worms. Well, hey, Jeff, thanks for your question. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. All right. Next up, I got a question for Tim, the Toolman Cook, on uh, 18 and 20 volt DeWalt tools and making the switchover. And should you? And what do you do if you have old 18 volt tools that work just fine? Should you buy more batteries for them, or just send them to the pawn shop? What do you do? Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada to answer another expert counsel question. This week's question comes from Andy and he says, is upgrading to the DeWalt 20 volt set worth it now that 18 volt has stopped being produced? He goes on to say, I've had a set of DeWalt tools, drill, reciprocating saw, circular saw and lights that I've pieced together over a few years. Slowly the batteries have been falling off, but I still have three good ones. Should I be phasing these out and buying a new 20-volt set, or just purchase a few new batteries and keep these until they give up? I'm a handyman around the house, but that's about it. Most get used for a time, once or twice a week, with the drill getting most of the attention. Would the 20-volt battery adapter be a viable option? Thanks for your advice and opinion, Andy. So Andy, thanks for the question. First, look, let's look at this as a math problem, or a value for your money problem. So a two-pack... 20 volt batteries plus an adapter to adapt them to your old 18 volt tools and a charger are $99 on Amazon. A single 18 volt DeWalt branded battery on Amazon is around the $100 mark. There's a lot of off-brand generic 18 volt offerings but all the reviews on them that I've watched 
stated that their runtime and life expectancy are significantly shorter than stated. Or if you want to, for 139, you can get the charger, two 1.3 amp hour batteries, and an impact driver and a cordless drill for $139. Throw in an extra $15 and you can get a generic adapter to take those 20 volt batteries and run them on your old 18 volt tools. You can run those old 18 volt tools until they run out or until most people do, you fall in love with the new 20 volt stuff so much that you decide to replace your circular saw and reciprocating saw with the 20 volt technology. The 20 volt system, it's been out for nearly a decade now. They've worked out all the bugs and the prices come down significantly. So in price alone, it looks like the 20 volt system is a no brainer. You can basically replace everything you have for the same price of one old 18 volt battery. But also I'd say it's probably time to look at the future a bit too. DeWalt 18 volt batteries are going to be eventually much more hard to get. They're not going to be available anymore and they're going to be more expensive for the ones you can still find on the aftermarket. So if you stick with the 18 volt, you're either going to have worn out tools or worn out batteries. I remember years ago, just after Makita brought out the first 18 volt lithium ion system, a customer came in looking to order an old 7.2 volt battery for his Makita cordless drill. By the time I could get it brought in for him, the single battery cost more than the Makita entire drill driver combo kit with two batteries and a charger. That's where the DeWalt 18 volt is heading very quickly. The technology benefits of switching are also significant. With the 20 volt, you're going to get 75% more power, nearly 200% better battery life, and DeWalt seems to be committed to backwards compatibility for the long term, so you shouldn't have any issues getting batteries or upgrading for the next decade or so if you stick with the 20 volt system. When it comes down to it, you're just a handyman around your house. Your current tools should last quite a while, but it's your batteries that sound like they're nearing their end life. At this point, doubling down on more 18 volt batteries might help you in the short term, but long term you'll end up needing to upgrade and spend the money twice. To me, I just don't see any advantage of sticking with the old discontinued battery format any longer. Plus, the new tools will blow you away, and who doesn't like an excuse to get new tools? If you decide to upgrade, I would love to hear your thoughts because I personally have been incredibly happy with the 20 volt lineup I've had so far. I recently ordered a brushless circular saw and reciprocating saw, and I'll share my thoughts down the road on that because uh, I'm pretty excited to get using those. Now, one more side note on those battery adapters. If you are looking to upgrade to a newer platform or a different line of tools, Amazon has a whole line of adapters that'll allow you to interchange battery types from different one, one set of tools to another. So say you have a Milwaukee drill, you want to run the battery system on the DeWalt grinder, slap in that adapter, they're pretty cheap, you know, 15 to $30 depending on which one you need, and you can interchange. So say one line has one specific tool you really need, but you're really set on the DeWalt battery system, go ahead, get what you need, and go from there. So I hope that helps a little bit. Just my thoughts, you know, I'm definitely a DeWalt fanboy because I've been gradually switching over to all of these. I really like the system. I think, like I said, the 18 volt is a dying and dead format that's going to be harder and harder and harder to find uh, compatible batteries for. The price is going to go up. The technology is passed. You know, don't run out and get all new tools yet, but that $139 kit is basically equal to the price of one 18 volt battery. And in my mind, it's a no-brainer. Anyway, guys, thanks again for letting me share with you. If you want to know more about what I do, check out our YouTube page at All Seasons Maintenance. We just hit 150 subscribers. We have a pretty cool community going over there. It's a great place to interact and ask uh, questions about anything and everything handyman, 
home maintenance related. I'm even going to start dabbling in some tool reviews because people seem to be asking for that a bit too. We have a new video every Friday sharing tips on how to get the most out of your handyman, contracting, lawn care business. Even if you're just a solopreneur, give us a checkout. Go on over, check it out. we got all kinds of tips for you. If you want to see what we do on a regular basis, go and like our Facebook page, All Seasons Maintenance, and it just gives you a day-to-day -day look into what we do. So if you have any more questions, guys, regarding home maintenance, handyman business, lawn care, being a solopreneur, or anything else, send them to Jack, and I'll answer them for you. Anyway, guys, thanks a lot. Stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I agree with this, and I'm, I'm going to dogpile on a little bit about how stupid it is to, to spend a dollar, a single dollar of your hard-earned money on anything in the 18-volt tool line of the wall that's still around, including the batteries, versus buying an adapter for your old tools. I've, I've recently uh, had an item of the day that is exactly that. It's an adapter set. And I'm also going to say, if you buy the adapter DeWalt makes that's black and yellow versus the generic black adapter, you just hate money. Because for the price of one of the DeWalt ones, you can buy two of the generic ones. When I needed one more, I bought two in case one breaks. They're the same thing. So buy the cheaper generic adapter. I'm agreement with generic batteries suck. Here's the problem with buying even the best 18-volt DeWalt legacy battery you can get from DeWalt today. They suck, and it hurts me in my heart to say that. I have a drill, a DeWalt drill, that I picked up off the road Back when I did CATV work, it is over 25 years old. I did try to find its rightful owner. I never did. In fact, it's probably over 30, it's over 30 years since I picked it up off the street where it bounced off the back of somebody's truck doing service work back when I did that work. It was probably several years old then. It still works. When I found that, I took it home, I had chargers, I had other 18-volt uh, tools, and back then, I remember I was doing a job with a neighbor. We were putting a fence in between, we were sharing the work and sharing the cost of a fence between our two properties, and my, my drill went dead, and I didn't feel like going in the house. So I took that 18-volt power pack, and I threw it in the charger that I had out there, and it was in there for all of 10 minutes. And we went back to screwing the stuff together with the fence again, and I pulled it out and slapped it in the drill. And he goes, it can't be. And he, the man was literally disgusted by the time we were finished with that fence that that put enough charge in that battery to finish the whole job. And it was still running strong. And he couldn't get his head around it. And that's how good the 18-volt line was. DeWalt doesn't make battery packs. DeWalt sells battery packs with their name on it. The battery, and I'm talking the new ones, the old ones, etc., Okay. The ones they make are the best for their tools you can get. No generic stands up. I've done some research. There's one that I might bring you soon that's not as good, but per, you know, per hour of runtime, it's good enough that it actually costs a lot less. I saw a really great video one of y'all sent me on that. So, But my point is that they don't build the battery packs. And they certainly don't build the 18-volt battery packs. And they certainly have no interest in prolonging the legacy tools because if you get rid of your 18-volt tools and you're going to stay DeWalt loyal, you buy new tools. So that's called an installed base. And you, when you're a manufacturer, you come out with a new line, you want the installed base to go away. They kind of were forced to bring out the adapters because at least that got you buying new batteries. 
The reason that happened, the newest, best 18-volt batteries you can buy are garbage. And I don't know that DeWalt's the only line that has a legacy battery from an old line that that's true of. I doubt that they're the only ones. They are garbage. They are nothing like the old ones. The new 20-volt batteries are great. I love them. The old 18-volt batteries were better. They were better. I, I, I shit you not. They, they, they lasted longer. They ran more. They were, and, and I'm not saying the technology of, of lithium-ion, the new batteries, isn't a better technology. DeWalt made the best battery packs that have ever existed in the, with the old technology. It went away, and they have no interest and no ability to bring it back. So if you buy anything that says 18 volt on it for DeWalt, you are just throwing your money away. Get the adapters, keep using your tools. Like you said, and the, some of those tools, I don't know if they build tools that good anymore. The new tools are great too. I mean, anything I need new, I'm going with DeWalt 20 volt. And I, you know, I've looked at the other lines, and they're all pretty good anymore. But I'll stick with it. But don't spend a dime. Again, if you go out and buy the best, largest amp hour, 18-volt legacy DeWalt battery from DeWalt you can get, it is garbage. If there is any cost differential, it's worth it to get the adapter. The adapters end up costing about $14 a piece if you buy the generics. And your new tool gets, your old tool gets new life. Just my little dog pile on that one. And next, I've got a question for insulation for Ben Falk. He knows a little bit about insulating since he lives like at the top of the world where it freezes all the time. Hey, Jack and all, Ben Falk uh, with Whole Systems Design here. Question about insulation and also quite a number of questions regarding the specific um, roof situation, mold situation. Um, you know, question about increasing performance, but you also have other issues going on, like you said, with mold. So I'm not going to attempt to, to, to answer every piece because it, it would be like trying to diagnose and recommend, diagnose a problem and recommend a solution for someone, you know, uh, that you should meet with and get a one hour history with and a site visit with from just reading an email. So that's would be misleading. So I'm not going to do that, but, um, I will talk about a little bit about insulation choices, um, which can help you, and also moisture management. So I'm a big fan in the same climate, humid, cold climate, of of insulation that can dry out. So that's actually hydrophilic insulation. It's a little bit of a misleading term because hydrophilic means water-loving. But hydrophobic materials actually don't dry out. They They won't absorb moisture. And then when they're sandwiched in an assembly, like spray foam always is, because it has to be sprayed against something, um, that's when you get problems because they, they won't take on any moisture. And so the moisture accumulates in that assembly in the sandwich. And that's where every problem happens is in sandwiches of materials usually. So, um, so cellulose can actually absorb some moisture and then release it if it's installed properly. It can take on humidity and then release it. So it has a lot of tolerance for avoiding, you know, nightmarish situations like mold and rot in a roof assembly. Um, it does take up more room. It's not as high performance per inch. You know, it's like R3, three and a half, depending on the density of when it's applied, versus R5 to six or so for spray foam. But that's just one metric. You can always have a thicker 
roof. You know, sometimes that's a lot of work. Sometimes not. If you're building new, less so. Um, so in your situation, I would consider cellulose or wool. A lot of people are starting to go with wool. Um, it might be less available where you are and it's kind of expensive, but it's very high performance and very resilient. Um, in the, in the roof assembly and I would vent it from the top. So I had to have a baffle, you know, some kind of vent. There's various products they make or strategies you can employ to have a, a, a vented roof above the insulation. Uh, so when moisture inevitably, as it will get into the insulation, gets into the insulation, it can then be released at different times of the year into the vent and get out of the building. I think it's pretty unrealistic in a cold, humid climate to ask any part of a building basically to, to never take on problematic levels of moisture. It's just, it's not very realistic. In a, in a lab environment, sure, that's possible. But in the real world of blowing sideways rain in January and uh, someone boiling pasta on the stove that didn't get vented out or a shower that didn't vent properly, it's gonna, you know, it's just going to happen. And um, we're seeing a kind of shitstorm of, of building problems because of that. Because we're going super high performance, but not resilient and depending on, you know, everything to work properly in a very non-passive, active, kind of technical system. And I think it's 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 not a good idea. I don't think. I think resiliency as a, and passivity is a better approach. Um, so I would I would do something like, you know, eight to fourteen inches of cellulose in the roof, or wool. Or Roxel. Roxel bats can be good if they're installed very, very well. I'm a big fan of loosely blown in material like cellulose because it fills the voids better. Um, I'd vent it above and, uh, basically that's the approach I would take. And then I would, I would air barrier at the, below it on the inside of it. So you are venting strategically as well. So you want to, you want to stack the odds and have multiple strategies going in your favor. So one would be what I mentioned about hydrophilic insulation and being able to vent it and not having it sandwiched. That's one or two strategies. And then another stacking of the odds in your favor would be having a vent, like it could be a heat recovery ventilation unit. I'm more of a fan of something passive, like simply a window or two very high in the structure at the top of the building. Could be a skylight, although those are prone to, to leaks. And other vents down low in the building, which is just the best way to passively cool a building in, in the warm summer. And you can crack those as needed to manage your humidity level. Generally, want to keep it like 35% or less in the building, which is very dry. It's drier than pe most people want it, but it's that's what you need to avoid condensation forming inside wall assemblies. So I would do that as well. Just make sure your building's well ventilated. You have good humid um, humidistats. Um, you know, the sensors of humidity in the building and you're keeping track of it and you're keeping ventilation. I have really good uh, bathroom fans, like inline fans. Most of the bathroom fans they sell are crap. They just really don't move enough air. If you're getting, um, if you can't sh shave right away after a shower because your mirror's fogged, which is like pretty much always in, in a typical bathroom vent situation, then you, your fan isn't working well enough to get the moisture out. So what we found the only way to do that is to put in like a high capacity inline, like squirrel cage type of fan. Some of them are really quiet 
and duck that out and don't depend on the unit with the light that you buy, the combo light fan unit from Home Depot. Just forget about those. <laughs> they, they just, they're not adequate. It's like, I don't know, it's like buying an axe handle at a hardware store. It just generally is defective on the shelf, you know, it just, it's not up for the job, at least in a cold, humid climate, you know, in a, other climates, it might be adequate, but not up here. So yeah, you do all that, you stack the odds in your favor. And I think you shouldn't have a mold problem as far as what to do with the existing mold. I, you know, I'd have to see it more than just a video. Um, you know, if you vent it, you're going to dry things out, keep it on the outside assembly. The best thing might t- to do might be to not touch it, just leave it up there as long as you don't have rot and make sure it's on the outside of the building assembly and any mold spores are going out. They're on the, you know, on the outside of your pressurized building, essentially. So the air is moving away. Um, sometimes the best thing you can do is leave a problem, not touch a problem actually, but you do want to get at the root of it. And why did the mold form? Was it a leak from the outside? You may have said, and I didn't catch it on a long email. I'm swamped right now with emails, but, um, if it's a condensation from the inside, that's honestly more likely Then you have to address that with moisture management of the building, air barriers to some extent, ventilating where that moisture gets to as well. So good luck. Next up, got one for Keith Snow, and this one is about local food. Everybody says you should eat local, eat local, buy local, eat local. Well, how do you find local sometimes? That can seem really hard. Keith, what say you on this one? Hey, Jeff Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Wanted to discuss sources for local food. A dude named Alex in West Virginia emailed and said that he's having some trouble getting produce and certain proteins, and he wondered if I had any resources to buy farm-fresh stuff. So I wanted to, first of all, say it's a great question, and I've definitely seen supply chain issues um, I'm the director of food and beverage at a major ski resort in Utah currently, and they um, are, and we are definitely having challenges with our vendors in finding certain proteins and definitely produce. And the issue is actually getting a little worse as some of these supply chain issues that we have after COVID-19 work themselves out, hopefully. But in the meantime, um, I wanted to suggest a couple of options for you and These places or these sources I am quite familiar with and I've worked with or through both of them. Uh, One of them is called localharvest.org, and that is basically a zip code-driven list, essentially, of local farms and farm markets. And through the years, I think some of the listings have gotten a little commercialized, but there's still plenty of small family farms that you can find and they have just tens of thousands of listings and I used to provide some video content for localharvest.org so I would check them out because they've been a good source for me to find local beef uh, places that have Berkshire and other heirloom hogs and definitely lots of raw dairy and, and tons of CSAs now through this whole COVID thing, the CSA movement has seen an absolute boom in membership. We actually tried to join one local to us that raises everything from vegetables. They have some citrus, all kinds of things, and then dairy, beef, pork, chicken, eggs, the whole shoot and match, as they say. But they have a waiting list. So that is happening um, all over. So I do suggest checking out Local Harvest. 
to see what you can do. And, you know, it's a good time to support farmers and get a freezer and put a, you know, half of a beef or a half of a pork in there and uh, make sure you guys have enough food. So localharvest.org on that one. And the next place that I wanted to mention is a pretty interesting um, situation. When I used to live in Montana, we had a lot of friends that were very natural eaters. They, you know, they avoided gluten. They wanted everything local and organic and heirloom, you, you name it. That was what they were into. So they turned me on to a buying system. It's called Azure Standard. So A-Z-U-R-E and then the word standard. You can look them up on the internet. Um, back when I was using them, you had to pay when you picked up the food. Now everything is done online. It is super easy. So what you do is go to azurestandard.com and you find the local drop and that is the meeting place. And what Azure does is they basically are a delivery system where they buy all kinds of excellent produce, um, supplements, oils, meat. I mean, you name it, dairy, they have a lot, a lot of different thousands and thousands of products that you can get through them. You go online, you shop in the convenience of your home, you use your credit card, you place the order, and there's a certain cutoff time. Um, once you have that order in, about two weeks later, the truck will come to your area, and every drop has what they call a drop coordinator. So you would contact that person, let them know that you're going to be at the drop and what the specifics are. And your stuff will come and be delivered, and the drop coordinator will let you know, hey, the truck is 30 minutes out, whatever it might be. And this is a great way to get some excellent products that are definitely harder to find. Uh, we recently bought some of Azure Standard's um, organic yellow popcorn. We buy it in five-pound bags. It's really excellent stuff. The other thing that they have, which I really like, is... They've got dairy from a farm that's up in the, it's, I believe, Northern California, not far from the coast. It's called Alexander, and they have incredible milk. Now, it's not raw milk, but it is um, from Jersey and some other breeds of cows that are out on pasture, and they do use a low-temperature pasteurization, and their whole milk is 6% butterfat. So it is excellent milk. Um, and I can't remember if it's cream line milk or not. Um, either way, we bought probably seven or eight containers of it um, maybe a month ago, a month and a half ago, and it was incredible. The kids drank that stuff so fast. Um, we've ordered some more. They also sell some really great European butter um, and other things. So Azure Standard is definitely a good service, and you can buy, like I said, everything from produce to grains, to dairy, supplements. Um, I think they even have a, some cleaning products. There's no fee at all to join. It's totally free, and they don't charge um, shipping, per se. You just put in your order, and the truck comes. You meet it, and you're off to the races. So those are two great sources. I hope that helps. want to let everybody in the TSP audience know that I do have some limited supply of harvest eating seasonings, including Montana steak. Now, that's my most popular one. Um, we were able to put together enough of the ingredients to have 50 jars. Now, I think we're down to about 30 jars already. Uh, people are buying them in 8, 10 at a time just to get their, their hands on it. We also have my favorite seasoning in stock, which is harvest eating Greek chicken. 
and that is amazing. So do check those out because I know a lot of you, um, you know, in the last six months or so have emailed me, um, about, you know, the Montana steak in particular. So that is live and on the site and it's definitely a first come first serve thing. And my suppliers who, um, have been working with me since 2011 are telling me that I cannot get anything else for the rest of 2020. So go check it out. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks for supporting TSP and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Next up, got a question for Jeff Lawton on pond building. And instead of, hey, I have a site that I think I could put a pond in, I got a site that kind of is a muddy hole. It's kind of a natural pond. It's kind of a pond in wet weather and not in dry weather. But all the good dirt's in there. I want to get the dirt out of there and do other things with it. I want to make a pond. How do I go about doing this? Jeff, take it away. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here. And I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia, where I'm consulting in the suburbs. And I have a request here for some advice on um, digging a pond. So um, we have Stephen here is asking a question about um, here's a low-lying wet weather pond uh, that holds water a few months of the year um, when there's um, what he describes as proper rains. And they want to dig out and make a permanent pond and the reasons are, or what he describes is all his best topsoil is currently in the pond. Um, and I want that for a swale creation and other earth projects. Now, this tells me it's not a created pond. It's actually a natural pond because I can't understand how all your best topsoil ends up in a pond that you've actually built yourself with earthworks. I mean, was there a serious accident where it all ran off and there's some kind of major catastrophe soil erosion event I, I doubt it i think it must be a natural what he describes as a natural pond and there's a lot of topsoil in that bottom point um you should be able to make a swale without using that topsoil you should be able to dig through the topsoil that's in position to make your swale so i'm not quite sure about some of this um but there shouldn't be a problem if you can get through that deep topsoil get it out use it somewhere else whatever you want to use it for um, that's always the way we do it. We get the topsoil out. It's a wonderful resource. And then we have to get down to a layer that has a reasonable amount of clay to build the pond wall that retains the water and to often to compact the inner wall. Now, it sounds like there's a very high water table here. So you might find that when you just dig down, it fills with the high water table. I'm not 100% sure. So um, what... Um, what Stephen wants to do is drop the highest water level so the surrounding areas are less mucky and, um, and can keep his mower and tractor from getting stuck. So this really does sound like we've got a high water table. Um, and um, when, when we dig in high water table areas, what we dig is what we get usually. So we do, often we don't need a dam wall, pond wall. We don't need to hit clay so much. We just dig a hole and it fills with water. Now what we dig is what we get. So we get the hole we dig almost 100% and all the material spare can be used for other purposes. So that might be the way you raise the, 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 the soil level around your pond is literally with the ex excavated material. It is going to depend how deep that topsoil is because you don't want to be building up the, the area with subsoil um, unless you can put it firm first and topsoil over the top. So... Um, 
he, he says that they, he would like to have ducks would like to have a constant place of water and attract natural wildlife. So you're going to get both of those, and you could have a very productive duck system if you have high um, a high water table where you can hold the water all the time. Um, he also wants an emergency source of water, so that's fine. And the area is about half an acre in 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 Georgia by Savannah, so. It can be quite wet in those areas, so I'm thinking it's a high water table. It empties into a drainage ditch and runs for about 800 feet to the road. Um, and he's confirmed that there's no wetland protection or Army Corps in involvement if he was to dig this out. So he's got an idea to, to, to rent an excavator and dump truck for a week and collect as much soil as he can and hopefully hit the ground good clay bottom. Um, so it all sounds like he's got the right idea. So he'd like the bottom to be over six feet with a ring of about one, one foot deep for cleaner plants. So it's sounding like he wants a one foot deep terrace around the pond, so one foot of water. It can be one to two feet for most reeds. All reeds have a, have a depth limit of two feet. Now your your fish ponds, if you want a fish pond, you don't want to go more than about six, seven feet in depth. Then you don't get an inversion layer and the turnover at change of season where you get different temperatures at the bottom of the pond and the top of the pond. And also that's the productive depth for fish. Doesn't mention fish here. So everything else sounds okay. If you want more water and you're not concerned about having the highest production fish pond, you can go deeper. Um, but it sounds like it's all going to be about the topsoil that comes out and the using of that topsoil to raise the, the soil level, um, dig a swale. Now, in these high water table areas, often swales turn into ephemeral canals where sometimes they're just a, a canal of water and then they're only really a functioning swale in dry times when they leak down. But every, everything sounds okay. Um, that... Hiring an excavator might be more expensive if you're an inexperienced driver than just getting an experienced driver in who can do the job so much quicker. But it can be a lot of fun trying to learn how to drive an excavator. And if you've got some skills, you might come out on break even. If you've got good skills, of course, renting an excavator can be a cheaper way to do it than getting a contractor in. But consider a contractor. Try and do, um, if you can, Try and find out how far down the water table is, whether that's a seasonal water table, how far it drops in, some, in, the, in the hot, dry months, and how high is it in winter, and try and find out how deep the topsoil is. So if you rent um, what we in Australia call a backhoe, what the English call a JCB, it's, a, it's like a tractor with a front-end loader on the front and then stabiliser rams that go down and a bucket on the back, they drive on the road looks like a tractor with a, a sort of digger on the back. And, and it's the quickest and cheapest machine to get in, moves quick across country and can dig, dig a deep trench. So that trench will go down 10, 10, 11 feet. And you can see how deep your topsoil is for a quick, cheap exploratory dig. So that's my advice. Hope it all goes well. Let us know how it does go. Thanks. All right, with that, let's talk about kind of a a very somber question, anyway. Is the United States heading for a civil war? And, of course, that I've gotten a lot more of that 
um, with the riots that are going on. And uh, Minneapolis is not the only place that has riots going on right now. Um, I, I when, when riots like this happen, I think it shows what's going on underneath things. And I, I've, I've, I've tried not to, to dig into this one too much with, the police officers that, that killed this man, that murdered this man, is the only word I can use for it, because I don't want to be the guy throwing more gas on the fire that's already fully involved. But since this is part of the question, I'll just come out right at the beginning and tell you what I think about the, the those people. They are all scum, and they should all, at minimum, go to prison for the rest of their life. And the guys that stood there while this man put his knee in the other man's neck are just as guilty of his murder, and they are just as... They are just as much complete pieces of human shit for what they did as the man who actually did it. And I would I would liken it, and i, I got to get off this quick so I don't go on a rant, but I'll just liken it to this. If you and I decided we're going to rob a liquor store, and you and me go to the liquor store, and I don't know you have a gun. I don't know you have a gun at all. And we actually talked about it, and we agreed no guns, that we're just going to go in there and we're two big guys and we're going to threaten the little guy behind the counter and take his shit. So we go in there, and we go to threaten him, and you pull out a gun and stick it in his face. And he complies with you and gives you the shit. And I say, dude, put the gun away, right? No guns, man. He goes, you know what? I'm just going to shoot this prick in the face so he can't ID us. And I go, no, don't do it. Boom, you shoot him. And we both run away. When we get caught, I will be charged equally with that man's murder, even though I said something. Because I chose to willingly participate in a crime with you. And I will be charged with the same murder charge you will, and people will stand by and say that's okay. Even though I didn't know you had a gun, I didn't know you were capable of killing the guy, we had no plan to kill the guy, and when you said you were going to kill the guy, I said not to. The fact that I didn't physically intervene, and that when it was over, I left with you, instead of calling the police and say, hey, this is what happened will be enough to charge me with murder. What those three officers did is worse because there was plenty of time to intervene. And they had everything they needed to intervene and no reason to fear for their own personal safety if they intervened. In other words, if I would have gotten in the way in that situation, I can legitimately say, I thought he was going to shoot me. He said no guns, also he's got a gun. And it happened too fast. All four of them, right now, if they were hauled off in a helicopter and dropped into a burning sea of fire, I would not shed a tear. Now, I'm going to let that go, but if I didn't say that, then they have to have this whole conversation about you know where I stand on it. There it is. They're scum. Right? Rioters? Not about rioting. I have some thoughts about burning cop cars in this situation that I won't say because it will inflame some people's assholes, but I'm not really concerned about the fact that they burned the police station down. I don't think it's a good idea, but I'm not really concerned about it. But when you start smashing people's businesses and stealing their property who had nothing to do with it, you're not protesting. You're a piece of shit, too. All right? But when these riots happen, when these riots occur, there's always this question, are we headed for civil war? Because this riot is, is going to take us there. Okay, this riot will do what riots always do. It will burn itself out. And the city that it happened in will be worse than it was before this started for the very people who were, quote-unquote, protesting. That's what will happen. This riot will not cause an American Civil War. This group of riots will not cause an American Civil War anything more than Ferguson did. And as bad as Ferguson was, 
Ferguson is a worse place to live today for the people who were rioting than before they rioted. All right, so that, that pattern will play out. But do these riots show us an underlying pattern? And then here's another one. Let's pull back from the current riots that are causing the question to be asked and answer the question independent of them. Because the question really is, is the United States headed for civil war? This riot made you ask me that, but it's not really the question. Not, that's not the question you're asking me. You're not saying, is this causing civil war? You're asking me, is, is, is there a civil war coming? And my feeling is, yes. Does that? I want to be clear about that. That does not mean that we are going to have one. Heading towards something does not mean getting there. I've headed toward many places and not actually arrived. But I think we are heading in that direction. Then the next question would be, given that I'm telling you that COVID is an accelerant killing the dying, does, does, does this whole COVID situation, which make no mistake about it, plays at least some role in how bad things are in Minneapolis right now? Because people are freaking pissed. Right? People are more volatile right now than they were a year ago because of the situation as a, as a whole. The ma you can't ignore the macro when you look at the micro. Um, but does this accelerate it? Were we already on the way? And my, my thought on this is yes. Because it has further shown the divisions in people in this country. And it's further entrenched people in their divisiveness. I have made statements as simple as If you're walking down the street far away from people and wearing a mask, it doesn't do anything to help you or anybody else. For that, I have been called an effing, without censoring, an effing piece of shit who doesn't care about people's lives and is a selfish bastard who is willingly, liter literally willing to murder people. For a functionally, factually accurate statement, you doing this—it didn't even—I didn't even say you are not allowed to do this, or I don't think you should be permitted to do this, or somebody should stop you from doing this. I simply pointed out this doesn't do what you think it does. As crazy as people have been in the last 20 years, in my observation, they've never been that level of crazy. That triggered over such a benign statement. So I think that we have festered the wound a great deal. And the wound is not about, you know, people aren't having a discussion about the riots. Well, is it or isn't it about racism? And somebody will make a case that it's very clear that this was a white man that murdered a black man, and that happened yet again, and therefore there's a pattern. And some will say, look, here's all these other officers who killed white people and Asian people, and, and that's also true. And the question is, was this racially motivated, this act of murder racially motivated? The answer to that question is, the only person that really knows that is the man that did it and his three accomplices. They're the only ones that have the heart, that made the decision to murder a man or stand by and watch a man be murdered, and they're the only ones that know what role racism played in that. It doesn't matter. It was murder by people that are supposed to be heroes that protect us of the very people they were supposed to protect. That's what it was. And that has just simply shown a problem that is systemic. We have a systemic problem in law enforcement. And this, this spins into this whole, are we headed for a civil war? Because when people are willing to go to the point of civil war, 
whatever that means for that situation, is when they have given up that there is any way that they can make change otherwise. That's when they go to civil war, when they give up. No one thinks, gee, this will be great. It's as bad as this is, it's what we have to do. There are people that are rioting right now that are complete pieces of shit. This is an excuse for them to go out and smash, burn, destroy, and steal. And it gives them cover to do that. And there are people that would do that on any given Tuesday if they had the cover to do it. There are also people doing it who never would have done it three weeks ago. But they got tied in on the mob mentality. And they got to a point where they broke. And they thought, nothing is going to change. And then whether what they do with that is good or bad... If we're looking at the motivation, it's that no, I can't be heard any other way. No one will listen to me any other way, so this is what I will do now. The person that's abused by a spouse that eventually sews the spouse's freaking sheets to the bed and sets his ass on fire with gasoline, that's a real thing. Look up the burning bed from the early 80s. Does that because they called out for help and nobody gave them help and they thought nothing would ever change and I will set a man on fire before this happens to me again. That's what you're seeing. People that feel they cannot be heard any other way. Now let me ask you, how many subgroups feel that way right now? And leave racism out of it. Just leave the subgroup be whatever the subgroup is. Including groups that people would say, well, they have a voice. Well, do they? How many people feel like, you know what, this country is heading into a place that I don't want it to go, and there's nothing I can do to stop it? How many people feel that way right now? Every one of those is a potential explosive in a box of explosives that leads to a civil war of some sort. Every single one of them. Look at what's going on, and again, I'm not a political person, you guys know that, but with this concept of mail-in voting and ballot harvesting, and what that can lead to. What that can lead to... And this is not about defending Trump or Republicans. But honest to God, it has a greater poten- it has potential for abuse on both sides. Let's be honest. Right? And justification that they're doing it, so I have to do it. But the propensity for this type of voter fraud is much higher on the left. And it has the propensity to lead to a point where you have 100% left control of the country. The leftists control everything. They control the courts. They control the Congress. They control the executive branch. And you will never have a Republican president ever again. That has the, I didn't say it's going to cause that. It has the potential to do that. Once that happens, you got 45, 50% of the population feel like my voice doesn't count anymore. You can't have a better setup for a civil war. But civil wars are not always shooting wars. They are divorces. And then when you ever have a divorce, the real question is, what do both sides have to give up in that divorce? Are they willing to do it, and are they willing to let the other side go peacefully? Just think of a regular divorce. Two parent, two people, not parents, no kids in this one. It's a little bit cleaner. They have relatively equal property shares anyway, and they both want a divorce. Most of the time, if both accept a divorce is going to happen, And there really is no way to hold a person in a marriage. You can delay divorce, but you can't really force someone to stay married to you in America today. It becomes fairly amicable. At least there might be a lot of yelling and screaming and anger and gnashing and uh, threatening and whatever. But in the end, everybody looks at it and says, burning this to the ground over this, we should just go on with our lives. 
You add children, you add disproportionate property shares, you add you know all kinds of things you add to it. The propensity for that divorce to turn ugly goes up. Well, when you talk about something like a couple states deciding I've had enough of your shit, we're forming a federation and leaving, there's a lot of kids involved at that point. There's a lot of things that we don't even see on the surface. So let's say Texas says, we see the big divorce coming, where it's a 50-party divorce. We don't want to be part of this. And we just say, you know what? Piss off. We have our own electrical grid. We have our own gold reserves. We have a government that is identical in structure to the federal government. So we have a federal system, a true federal system within our state. We can literally flip a switch tomorrow and be our own nation simply by saying, you know what? That little piece of New Mexico that you get power from us, hey, do you want to come or do you want to run generators until they hook you up or we'll sell you some power like how do you want to handle this that's about that's the biggest technical thing we can refine more oil than we need and more and we can produce more gas than we need and we can produce more oil than we need we can produce all our own energy we can refine it we have seaports we can feed ourselves there's literally nothing texas needs that it doesn't have within its borders and its possession if you take the texas National Guard and Reserve Forces, we're the seventh, I think, seventh or ninth largest military in the world. We have a military that's capable of, def we don't need to be an offensive military, we just need a defensive military. We can be a state, a nation state of Texas tomorrow. It can literally, ha if the political will, and it's not, don't get me wrong, this is not some ego thing here. This is logistically the state with the greatest ability to become a nation as fast as possible, is Texas. Way easier than, let's say, Florida, that's part of the eastern electrical grid, that doesn't have the ability to refine its own oil and gas, and can't produce any, hardly. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's just, we can. So let's say we did it. Just so the scenario can play out. Okay, then what happens? What happens? Regardless of who's in Washington, it's the orange man, it's the next president, whatever. Do they let us go? Is there a political will to send troops in to prevent it? What does it look like? I don't know. And part of me feels like if this happens, and I'm not talking about just Texas, I'm talking about the whole country, this is going to look a lot more like the Soviet Union in the late 80s to early 90s than it does like 1861 America. I don't think the political will to start bombing each other in this country exists. And I don't think any of the parties will be furthered through doing so. So you can make a real case that it was in the benefit of the Union to prevent secession in the 1860s. That there was a clear case that the Union was better off in not allowing the secession to occur. You can take the moral question of slavery right off the table and just say logistically, economically, etc., Did this make, was it worth it? Can you make the case with a spreadsheet that it was worth doing? And you can. I'm not sure you can do that today. I'm not sure you can do that today. Because the capability of warfare is such, is so much greater. It's so much greater than it was. It is, even if you leave nuclear off the table. And then the consequences globally of instead of an amicable breakup, an active war, 
Additionally, if two guys are fighting in a bar, and there's a lot of people in that bar that hate both of them, they're both very vulnerable to being stabbed in the back. You know, like a giant knife into the kidneys, and you both end up dead. The United States has a lot of places that hate us. If we have a long, drawn-out, protracted civil war, we're completely vulnerable to everybody. And, and the, the powers that be in each region that are very concerned about their control in foreign systems can completely lose control of that if they don't get killed in the bar fight. So I don't think we can have... And I, this is Here's my thing with this. Anybody that says, they, I know we're going to have a civil war, and I know what it's going to look like, stop listening to anything they have to say. I have no idea what any of this would look like. These are different postulations of different possibilities. But one way or another, I think we're headed for a point where some pieces and parts of this country pull apart. Because I think the wounds are too deep. And I think the feeling that I will never have control of my life the way I want it to be if I let this go on. Because as much as you might live in one state where you think of what you want as being more toward freedom and liberty, there's somebody in another state that wants more government control that sees you the same way you see them. I know that's hard to take in. I know that's hard to understand. But there are people in New York City that look at people like me in Texas is why they can't have what they want in the world. I'm me, literally me, I, Jack Spirico, standing in their way of having the level of government control of their life that they wish to have. We have divides on income. We have divides on race. And remember, the people in power only benefit by stoking division. There's a problem with that. If you stoke division enough, it can all blow up in your face. The, the people in power have forestalled a lot of this for so long because they're very good at understanding the forces that they play with. They want just enough discontent, just enough riots, just enough looting, just enough hatred, just enough loathing to keep us divided, just enough to control us. But there's a point where people snap. There's a point where you thought you had everything in balance with your chemistry set, But the next thing you know, your house burns down. Are we heading in that direction? Absolutely. I, I, I can tell you that all you have to do is have a conversation with an average person who has no desire for it. And you can see that we're heading in that direction. And if you look at the states, based, and if you want to see how divided the ideology is, look at the states under Democrat control and their approach to the COVID crisis versus the states under Republican control. And by and large, neither approach is working, quote-unquote, better when it comes to the disease. It's become ideology. We're dealing with an effing pandemic, but we're fighting about ideology instead of science. And that's one crack. So the question really is, are we heading there? Yes. The answer, though, is, well... How many cracks are there, and how many cracks can we have before the object that's being cracked falls apart? And does it fall into two big parts? Does it fall into many parts? Does it fall into a few parts? And the answer is, I don't have any idea. 
And it's a totally different scenario than the 1860s because there's people all over the country that completely differ with the person across the street like 100%. There was some of that during the Civil War in the United States. Don't get me wrong. But there was also a clear line of division. There was a Mason-Dixon line. We don't have a Mason-Dixon line. So is there a division between upstate New York and New York City and the five boroughs? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Is there a division between eastern and western Washington State, eastern and western Oregon State? Is there a division between three big cities and the rest of California? So if you have an explosion, does it create multiple... Forms of, let's call it, instead of civil war, let's call it divorce. Because let's say you're a Californian, and Texas and Louisiana and a few other states say the hell of this and leave. And any balance for your federal system is gone now. And when you say, well, I'll move to Texas, we say, ah, we don't want you. We're, we're just working this out right now. We don't have any room for new people. You should have came before this happened. We don't trust you. Now what? Now what? Now you're in the mountains of California more controlled by L.A. than you ever were before. How does that? I don't know. My wife and I had this conversation. She said, what does it look like? I said, I don't know. She said, do you think it's going to happen? I said, I don't know. I still think we're heading in that direction. And I don't have a good answer. I will tell you this. At this point, and my wife and I had this conversation last night, yesterday, when we were out... Literally killing grandma and grandpa. We went out and had dinner at a local restaurant, and we did eat our food without shoving it through some sort of weird slit in our mask. We didn't wear a mask. We sat outside, and we had some really great Mexican food. So I've been told that that literally means I'm killing grandma in New York City, by the way. I don't know how, but apparently me going to dinner in Texas kills grandma in New York. Not Como, me. Anyway, so we were out there, and I said, so, you know, does that mean that we're committing suicide since I literally am grandma and grandpa? Anyway, um, we had this conversation looking around at everybody, kind of enjoying themselves and the world reopening and coming and people laughing and being together. And I said, you know, the thing is, everybody should be a prepper at this point because we already know that it's likely there will be an uptick in cases in the fall seasonally, if there's any kind of a severe flu on top of it, then they'll really freak out. They're going to do all this again. All these people are going to go back to normal life and not do anything to be prepared when this happens again, and when it probably will. And then it's going to be worse than the first time, even though it should be better than the first time, because everybody has more time now, but since everybody knows what's going to happen, they'll panic more. And I feel the same way about this question about a civil war. No matter what it looks like, what it is, ends up being is massive disruption in the lives of the average person. Shortages of things. Any student in history will tell you that in many ways you are worse off as a civilian in the Civil War than a soldier. Not all instances, but many instances. Especially if your town became one that got surrounded and starved out. Especially if your town was one of the towns in the South toward the end of the war. At least the soldier had provisions. They might have ran thin, but they were there. 
So when you look at this, the people that have the least now will suffer the most then. So whether or not we have one, it's yet another reason to be prepared. With that, we wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed this one and hope that ending wasn't too, I don't know, uh, dark for you or whatever. But you know, when you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an honest answer best I can. Uh, with that, if you want to support the show and the work that we do, do consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, if you uh, start your shopping there, you will help us out in the work that we do, and you're probably going to buy something anyway. Today's item of the day are the Thermocell Portable Mosquito Repellers, specifically the MR150, but there are many versions of the Thermocell product. They all use the same little cartridges for fuel, and they all use the same replacement uh, repellent mats. So no matter what you buy from Thermocell, the same refills, which is nice. Because that way if you buy a portable one and one for your back porch, they use the same stuff. This is why you should use this stuff. It's affordable, and it really works. I was skeptical. My buddy David gave me one of these as a present. And uh, I was, it was one of the best presents I ever got because it makes mosquitoes go away. But the first time I ever saw him use one, we were at Nicole Sauces for one of her workshops. And the mosquitoes were just tearing us up. He pulls this little thing out, sticks the little thing in it, turns it on, a little flame inside you can't even really see unless you look in the window. And he says, yeah, it keeps mosquitoes away. Eh, bullshit. I've seen so many things that keep mosquitoes away that don't. We didn't get bit at all. This thing works. It's amazing. Check out the write-up. It will change your life just a little bit. And I brought it around because this is the time of year where the Skeeters really start up. So check it out again. It's made by a company called Thermacell, T-H-E-R-M-A-C-E-L-L. You can find it at the website. You'd get it in the Daily Mail if you were on the Daily Mail, which you should be on. You can find it at T-SPAS, and you can always support us when you do your online shopping at T-SPAS. Remember also, if you want to become a member, now is the time. The sale will go away next week. 25 bucks a year instead of 50 bucks a year. It's a hell of a deal. Pays for itself many times over in the discounts alone. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. Use discount code 25 bucks, 25BUCKS, to get the special rate. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. And boy, this is a song that is just, it's unfortunate that it's a perfect song for 2020, at least so far. It's called Away from the Sun by Three Doors Down. And this song is about how when you're down so far and you crawl and you claw back up, just when you think you're going to get ahead, something can just knock you down further than you were the first time. And if you watch the video that came out when this song came out, the official video, it's kind of soul-crushing, and it's supposed to be. And it's supposed to be because sometimes that's how this feels. Sometimes that's how this feels. Now, I just shared a, a, a cartoon on social media that was funny in a sad way. And it said, if 2020 was a game, and it was a whack-a-mole game, you know, you have a little hammer, and the moles come up, and you whack the moles down. But the mole had come out where the, the, the prize is supposed to come out if you win, which is right where your junk is. So the, the mole dick-punched the kid, and the kid's laying on the ground, dick-punched, and his hammer's, you know, on the other side, laying there, and the mole's just sitting there all happy. That's 2020, man. And that's why it probably feels just like this song. But let me tell you something. No matter what happens, you have more control over your life than anybody else does. No matter what happens, whether we're headed to a civil war or not, 
whether we're headed toward an amicable divorce or not as a nation, whether we're basically going to get through this shit like we have for 250 years, and even better days are ahead, but there's some darkness in between. No matter what, no matter what, things get better. I find people that generally don't get this way temporarily, but seem to have this type of mindset from this song as a life philosophy. It wouldn't matter how good things were. Because they haven't made the decision to start that battle upward yet. See, it seems like the people that actually go through what's in this song, eventually they do win. Because the song is not about the fall. It's about the crawl up. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This life makes sense Can anyone tell what I've done? I miss the life I miss the colors of the world Can anyone tell where I am? Cause now again I found myself so far down Down away from the sun shines the light.